Good morning. Well, I always love reading this every once in a while. You know Malachi 3.16? Check this out. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Well, I think we're here today to talk about the Lord, right? The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And so think about that. Our names are being written in a book right now in the heavenly places because we've gathered here to speak of the Lord. So I just want to begin this morning. First of all, I want to, you know, welcome our internet uh, online congregation. But hey, Mathis family, I know you're there. You are greatly missed. But we rejoice that your family is healing and better than we expect to see you back here next week. Okay, all of you. And man, we're just standing in the gap until you guys are back here. We, we pray for you. We love you all. And all of you that are online, otherwise... God bless you for joining us today. You're as much here as if you were actually sitting here. We, we think that way right now. And since I have a microphone, I can plug my home group, right? That's not a big deal. I got to mention that we gave Al a, a medal at one point for being the humblest man in the church, but then he wore it the next Sunday and we had to take it away. So anyway, <laughs> um, it's a joy to, you know, to be standing here before you, but you know, our home group, our home group, I got, I got off track. I, I just want to say we meet every week. We thought, well, is that going to be too much? We love meeting every week. We're sort of, our home group is sort of an empty, we, empty nesters home group and that most of us are older, don't have kids at home. We don't have childcare, but we, uh, we gather every week and man, we're going through the book of Psalms and man, it's been so cool that we go through the book of Psalms and we start sharing what this Psalm has meant at some point in our life. And it's just so personal and real as we see how these, this incredible book is ministered to people through the millennia, right? But it's just a beautiful afternoon. We look so forward to it. We meet from 5 to 6.30 because we can. So anyway, so we're not up late. But anyway, just kidding, but just... So that's our deal. So anyway, uh, that's our group. We've got about six or eight people in it or a little bit more, but we'd be happy to have some new faces if it sounds like something you'd love. Well, if I, if, if I pass you out a Bible, there's actually a bookmark in it where we're starting today. But, you know, there's a, there's a pastor named Pastor Chuck Smith who uh, was a mentor and a great influence on me in my very early days of thinking I might possibly be a pastor someday. But he wrote a, a little book. It wasn't huge, but it was... Why Grace Changes Everything. And wow, it's a powerful book because grace changes everything. It's the greatest game changer in all human history. On this side of the cross, you know, the gift of salvation is through God's grace. And it's a gift from God to us. You know, it's, a, it's an extension of, of our expression of faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel does something to us when we hear it. And we respond in this, in this faith that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and what he did on the cross did what he said it, it did. And then God hears that and responds by grace. And the outcome of his grace on us is our salvation unto eternal life. That's what we're talking about today, okay? But, but this, this idea of grace, God's unmerited favor. You know, it, it said that mercy is not getting something you deserve. That's sort of like a judge saying, okay, you're guilty, but I decided not to do anything. Well, you didn't deserve that. You didn't do anything. You're guilty. That's it. That's, mercy is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. 
Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Grace is getting something there's no way you deserve it. And that's the beauty of grace. And only God can give that to us. Anyway, that's the gospel of grace. And, and that's our situation on this side of the cross. But God's grace, by the way, was abundantly clear on the other side of the cross. And when we say that, we always mean before, let's just say before Christ's crucifixion. But we can say before the incarnation, back earlier into the, very, to the book of Genesis and forward. And grace starts showing up early on there, I think in chapter 8. Um, the word we have in, in Greek in the New Testament, the word for grace is charis or charis, charis. I don't speak Greek that well, obviously. But um, in the Hebrew, the word that's translated as grace is, it's, it's one of these messy words in Hebrews. Chen. Chen. You don't want to be standing near each other. It's not a good COVID social distancing word, you know? Chen. Chen. But it's also very often translated favor. And the first time we see it translated is in Genesis 8. It says God's favor was upon Noah. And he was the first one that this, this unmerited favor because this was a man that loved the Lord, Right? One of eight human beings, right? In God's favor. Then we start seeing it again and again, even in the Old Testament. But we just want to be clear that God's grace or favor is a gift and, and, and with it comes salvation by faith. And it was proclaimed on both sides of the cross. I have a passage here that's, that's a quote, the same quote. Can I have um, Joel 2.32? This is in both. You'll find it, Joel 2.32. And in Romans 10, 13, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, God's grace has been at work both sides of, of the cross, right? And so, so it says everyone. Everyone really? And sometimes the way I have to think about that, can, is it possible for anyone to be saved? Does it count for anyone? As my your wife Opal might posit, even people that hate the Dallas Cowboys? Is grace possible for them? I don't know. Is there redemption for them? Yes. I have a simple message this morning. It's to look at this question of just how vast, how vast, I, I couldn't think of another, how vast is the grace of God across the face of the earth? Is it truly everyone-sized? Or is it better to think of it, is it truly anyone sized, okay? And I don't want anyone leaving this morning just not sure about that, okay? Uh, especially if there's someone here this morning that's carrying some baggage that, 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 that constantly haunts them about some time in their life or something. Well, we're going to take care of that, okay, now this morning. I want to set up the passage we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at one of the kings of Judah in the southern kingdom. Uh, try to remember that, that, that after uh, Solomon died, very shortly thereafter, the 12 tribes of Israel split. Ten northern tribes called Israel, two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah. But when I say Judah, I mean both of them, but we just usually say Israel, Judah, okay? Um, uh, now... We're going to be looking at one of the kings of Jude, actually kind of two of them, the father and the son this morning. Now, I just want to say the kings of Israel and Judah, the majority of them were spiritual dumpster fires, okay? It's a mess when you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You'll never find a bunch of guys who are worse at honoring God, the bad ones, okay? And worse at raising their kids, worse than you for sure, okay? So you go, maybe I didn't do so bad. Read First Kings, Okay crazy bad parenting skills. And, um, and we're going to see an example of that this morning with, with King Hezekiah. 
Now, King Hezekiah was a great king. And uh, I just want to read a little bit about him. You don't need to turn there, but it's in 2 Kings 18. And, and I'm going to start in verse 7. Uh, no, 3, verse 3. It says, so King uh, Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he was one of the good ones, right? And, and according to all that David his father has done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. These are all pagan things that the earlier king had set up. It goes back and forth like this. You have a pagan king and then, a, and then one that loves the Lord. Hezekiah is a good one, right? Um, and he broke in pieces the bronze, this is cool, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made that until those days the people of Israel made offerings to, and they called it the Nehushtan, the Nehushtan. You remember the thing in the Exodus where, where, where the people are showing unbelief and God sends fiery demons throughout the camp, and Moses goes, Lord, don't, and, and people were dying, and it says, make a serpent and put it up, and people that look to that serpent shall be healed, Right? It says here that this thing was still around, I don't know, 500, 1,000 years later. And what happened? Why did the Lord say, make no images of me? Make no, they started worshiping it. They started worshiping it. Well, Hezekiah finally goes, uh-uh, melt it down. We're done with Nehushtan, right? Interesting. That's for free right there. Just, that's not really about the story. But it says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was none like him among all the kings of Judah before him. And he held fast to the Lord. Well, I just want to say, Hezekiah, man, what an amazing king. Okay? Um, and get this. He has the prophet Isaiah is sort of his counselor in his ear, physically. Isaiah was, came and spoke to Hezekiah many times and gave him strength and, and gave him imparted great wisdom. Now, he, he was such a good man that at one point he's actually on his deathbed and he just prays to the Lord and said, Lord, can I have a little more time? I, I just, can I, can I live a little, can you, can you bless me, can you heal me of this disease? And God says, you are such a godly man. Gave him 15 more years. That's great. The only problem is, he had one more son. If he could have only quit while he was ahead. You know, just the 15 years is good enough, Lord. He has one more son. The son's name is Manasseh. Manasseh. So this sets up the story. Uh, that I want to share. And to be honest, maybe it's just for one person here today. Maybe it's for one person online today. We have no idea who might. Maybe the Lord's drawn someone to our feed that we have no idea would be listening today. Maybe I'm talking to you. I don't know. Someone who thinks they're too far gone, who's done far too much, who stepped way over the line of God's moral law, uh, so bad that, 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 that you must think if God has grace for sinners, well, that grace for me is so far back in my rearview mirror, I'm way past Graceville. It's done. I'm toast. I don't know what my hope is. Your hope is in the Lord. Perhaps you know someone that might, in your life, that might be thinking like that. Well, we can, this, our, our passage today is going to help us understand how vast the grace of God is. So we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to pick up the story now of Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. So if you're there, I'm just starting in verse 1, reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And I'm just going, great, puberty with a crown and an army. Okay, this is going to end well. Anyway, he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did we just read about his father? What does this tell us about Hezekiah's parenting skills? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, 
This is the 23rd time in just 1st and 2nd Kings we've heard this said. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, speaking of a king of Israel or Judah. 23rd times. But in a funny way, isn't it true of maybe all of us at one moment in our life, we did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Or maybe we just keep our humility in place here. It goes on. He did what was evil inside the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So, so this is the residue of the Israelites' failure to fully remove the Canaanites from the promised land. They, remember, they sort of got, well, we did pretty good. We got a lot of them out. But we're not going to finish the job, right? And we go through all of that. Well, here it is. But now get this. This king is adopting their very demonic practices, which was why God wanted them shoved out in the first place. Crazy. Now we get to, in verse 3, we start reading the things he was doing. It says, For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. This is where the, the demonic ones love to go and do their ceremonies way up on a high place, you know. And that's the sort of thing. It's always a negative connotation in the Old Testament. The high places. He erected altars for Baal. This was the, the Canaanite god of prosperity and made an Asherah, which is basically, uh, 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 sometimes it's called an Asherah pole, but basically it, it's, a, it's a symbol of the god Asherah uh, and it's a fertility god, goddess, goddess, okay? As Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. They're worshipping stars. They're worshipping comets going by. It's just gone, to, it's gone terribly, right? Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, listen, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven, Get this, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Just understand, these all, all of these stars and stuff had demonic gods being worshipped behind that idea, okay? Uh, as I, as I, I said, they weren't worshipping uh, balls of atomic fusion reactions. They were worshipping these demonic, these demonic spirits that put themselves behind that worship to receive the worship, right? Get this, verse 6. He burned his son as an offering. This is the worship of the god Molech, okay? Big bronze, a giant bronze mess thing of, of Molech, hands out like this, hollow inside, and they would stoke it with fires so it was glowing red with heat. And if your Bible says and his, he had his son walk through the fire, it means that the, as the firstborn son was placed in those burning hot hands of Molech and burned as an offering. The idea was that if you sacrificed your firstborn son, the children which followed would be blessed and your family would prosper. And just to be sure, tradition says he sacrificed two other sons as well, at least three. And in a way, doesn't our society still practice this, promote this mindset? Isn't it this what's behind the horrible decision of, of aborting pregnancies today very often? Aren't some women misled to believe that by sacrificing this baby that the children that follow later are going to prosper and do better? We'll be in a better financial situation. Uh, it's going to be a better thing. You don't know who the father of this child, you know, whatever it is. They'll, they'll be more, we'll be more stable. We'll just turn this problem now into medical waste and our future will be better. Do you know what happens to medical waste? Great irony, it's incinerated. Now listen, I'm not trying to single out any gal in this room online. 
this morning. The sins of my pastor are as grievous to my Lord as any woman who ever had an abortion in her past. And God's grace by the power of the blood of Jesus is plenty big to forgive the both of us. You know, sin isn't graded on a curve. It's sinners, isn't it? So my sin is as bad as that sin. Exactly. Both can send us to hell, right? My point is only that Satan isn't creative. He shops the same old lies and ideas around for thousands of years and people keep buying it. We need to realize that mankind takes the bait over and over again. Verse 6 goes on. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Now, how crazy that in 2021, the stars are still being worshipped. We still have mediums, fortune-tellers are busy. I remember we live in a little beach town. The, the one fortune-teller had a brand-new Mercedes-Benz in front of her thing. All she's doing is reading tarot cards and all that junk, right? Along we have the witches, satanic cults. It's all still happening 3,000 years later. It's popularized today. God's grace needs to be pretty big with, let's just get back to Manasseh. Oh man. Verse 7, we're not done with him yet. And the carved image of Aserah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. That's where Manasseh drags these idols into. I just want to say the, next few, the rest of that verse is just saying that if you're careful to, to follow what I say, I will always protect you. I will always save you and all of that if, if you're careful to do what I say. But this is what Manasseh is doing. He's picking a fight with God. Man, this is the house of God who filled it with Shekinah glory, the cloud, when Solomon dedicated it. It was just like when the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory God went in and filled Solomon's temple. And people just had to stand back in awe. That's where, this is where Manasseh's dragging pagan idols into. The chronicler seems too polite to say it, but verse 7 tells us that this idol was Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility. We know from anthropology this goddess was worshipped through ritual temple prostitution. It means Manasseh made the temple in Jerusalem into an idolatrous brothel dedicated to Asherah. He desecrated holy ground. Are you kidding me? Imagine Pastor David or Pastor John you come in one morning, they've got a little hand truck and they're toting in here and they've got a Vishnu God from Hinduism. They set it in that corner and Pastor John follows them in with another one and, and we've got a Buddha, okay? And then maybe right back here we put that goat head Satan thing and then John comes, let's worship the Lord today, you know? But that's what's happening in the very temple of God in Jerusalem. That's what this man is doing. I'm not making a joke about that. He's building transgression upon transgression. One thing more foul than the next, provocation upon provocation. Think about it. Think about Jesus' righteous anger was set off by simply money changers and the people selling animals for sacrifice for the acceptable worship of God at that time, but they were just doing it in the outer court. Probably, I believe, the court of the Gentiles because it was convenient. And what, you know, what if Jesus, so he gets mad about that, whips, all that. What if Jesus walked into Manasseh's temple? 
Oh, oh, but God have mercy. It would need a lot what Jesus would have thought of that, right? Well, he did know about it, but... Verse 9, but they, the people, did not listen. Didn't listen to who? The Lord speaking through Isaiah, I would say. God had his mouthpiece there. Okay? And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil. Really? More? Get this, than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. They are now worse. He has made now Israel, or Judah, worse than the Canaanites. Blasphemy, apostasy. Verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Isaiah and probably soon Jeremiah as well, because Manasseh king of Judah has committed these abominations and has done more evil than all the Amorites who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Have you ever heard that thing about the ears will tingle? Now you know why their ears are going to tingle because of the amount of wrath the Lord has the right to bring. And so if the Lord is bringing such disaster on all Jerusalem and Judah, what do you suppose his wrath would be like on the instigator of that? Okay, sure, he's doing the whole country, get it. But what about the guy that's responsible? I just like to think of Mark 9.42, which would be on the screen right now. If someone wasn't talking to our slide guy. Okay. Mark 9.42. This is what Jesus said. Whoever causes one, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What about Manasseh? He's led a nation away from God. Wow. Verse 13, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. He's saying, at this point, he's already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, gone. Scattered the ten lost tribes of Israel, right? All that's saying right there is how I measured sin and apostasy there, I'm going to use the same plumb line, the same measuring line now on Judah. And get this, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wiping it and turning it upside down. Just... Okay, the dish is the kingdom of God. Jerusalem is, is in that dish and God's just saying, just going to wipe it clean. Turn it upside down. Just jump to verse 16 if you're following me. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he'd filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. People were standing up and going, this is madness. I stand with Yahweh. Yeah. I think it's almost a picture of the tribulation, right? The second half of the tribulation, when those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, they go to the guillotine or what have you. So that was clearly happening. There were people standing up and going, no way. But many people did, right? Now, the, we, don't, we don't have a biblical source, but Jewish tradition says that Manasseh, towards the end of all this, he killed the prophet Isaiah. He didn't just kill him. The tradition says he sawed him in half. Sounds like right in, right in his wheelhouse, Manasseh's wheelhouse of evil, right? 
Verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, oh great, there's more. Okay. And all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Well, God bless you all. I hope you enjoyed our time in God's Word this morning. Let's just all go home and stab ourselves or something. No. Laugh out loud. Okay. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said about King Manasseh. David's blood was in his veins, but David's ways were not in his heart. Yet this man we've just been reading about is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I couldn't believe that when I read that in a commentary. I've got to go Matthew 1.10. He's there. And isn't it amazing how God's Word never hides the ugly parts of our history? Any other religion would go, well, we don't need that story in the Bible. Let's just do all the good kings, right? No, God had a purpose in this story, and I think it's to bless some of us here this morning. God never tried to hide from Manny. He had a righteous father, had God's word, had Isaiah the prophet, and yet Manasseh spit in God's face, basically. Took God's people, God's nations, God's holy house, and desecrated it all. And I just say for us today as Christians, how easy it is for us to close the book on someone like that. I mean, we, we can look back and go, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Lord, judge, uh, take the key, throw it away, you know, done. I think of ISIS fighters. I think of the incredible cartel killers in Mexico when you read about the horrific things they do to human beings. Lord, just, just judge them, just banish them now and throw the key away. It's what my flesh wants to do, slam the door. But that's not how God thinks. Does God's grace have its limits? Or has Manasseh found the limits of God's grace? Well, if you're wondering that about yourself, it would be a shame if you never heard the rest of the story. That would be a crying shame. Did you know that there, in fact, is a book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? It's the next book, okay? So why don't we turn to the right? You're actually going to go to Second Chronicles. It's not very far away. Verse 33, I mean, chapter 33 of Second Chronicles in verse 10. And we're going to move on to the rest of the story. Could someone get me a bottle of water? I'm sorry. I walked up here and I am dry as a bone. <laughs> okay, I presume we're there. I'm in, I'm in verse 10, 2 Chronicles 33. So get this. After all, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. So who, re who reaches out here? Who does the reaching right here? The Lord. Is that not... Grace still trying to find a place to land has ever offered grace. This is the definition of undeserved favor. Would you not agree? Is it not? This is, this is not mercy. This is grace. This is somebody getting something they do not deserve, right? Well, what's God's response to a hopelessly sinful king addicted to sin or a hopelessly lost child of God addicted to the world and the sin, the flesh, the eyes, the devil. 
Well, what does God do here in this case? God stages an intervention. The first intervention right here, okay? Look at verse 11. Play close attention. This is important things we're about to read. Well, therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. So Manasseh somehow in his pride provokes the Assyrians the most, they are some of the most evil. It's It's said that the Assyrians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it and turned it into a factory system, right? But they came up with the idea of crucifixion and many other tortures. But anyway, he gets them mad at Judah. They come um, and, and they drag him away. The word there says they put a hook in his nose and pulled him off to captivity. Chains, of course, legs and feet as well. So the king who had spit in the face of the God is probably now being continually spit upon himself. A reckoning is coming. And as my mama always said, sin plants the seeds of its own destruction. And the seeds of sin that Manasseh sowed for 55 years have sprouted up and are in full bloom about to destroy him. But God is epically good at his interventions. For the Lord knows where our limits are. Now pay attention in verse 12. And when he, Manasseh, was in distress... He entreated. Now, I want you to know that word, it, it, it's, there's so much intensity in that. It's not, hey, God, I need you now. No, it's like on your knees, on your face. Some translations say he implored, he begged, he sought the Lord's favor. He entreated the favor of the Lord is God, but he combined it with, look at this, something hugely important and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Humbled himself greatly. God ain't going to buy it if you say, hey, I'm a great man and all, but I sort of need you right now, God. That, that's not entreating the Lord's favor. That's saying, oh my gosh. Uh, Manasseh's watching his entire world crumble around him at his feet. Everything he had built as a king crumble to the ground and realize, I've accomplished nothing. What I thought was great is nothing. And I entreat you, Lord. I entreat you. I beg you. And what do we have here? It's a textbook example of repentance. This is the kind of repentance that saves a lost sinner. And Manasseh was not the first and not the last to turn back to God in a season of severe affliction. It said, God, it said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he screams at us in our pains. I'm here. I, I'm this close. I want to save you. God always knew his children would rebel and turn away, become prodigals. But that, but that some would wake up and turn back, the question was, was is would God still be there when they did? I mean, Manasseh, isn't he the perfect parable of the prodigal son Jesus shared? That's who he is. In Deuteronomy 4, God knew his people would do this stuff. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. I'm going to read it. But this is God just saying way back then, they're still on the exodus. Listen, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God 
so as to provoke him to anger, the Lord will scatter you amongst the people. And he goes on, he says, and you will serve gods of wood and stone. Amazing. God knew his people would succumb to this, some of his people. But then he said this way back there in Deuteronomy, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So this is what's been working in the background. And God meant all of that when he said it. And every sinner has until their last breath to fall under this umbrella of mercy. But you have to come to the Lord. You are the one. So we've got Manasseh. He's exhorted the Lord. Verse 13 back in our, in our passage. He prayed to him and God was moved. In other words, God had compassion. God was moved by his entreaty, his, his helpless plea to be saved and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. As hard as it is to believe, God reads hearts. Now, you might look at this and go, sure, who isn't going to call out to the Lord when the Assyrians are about to do God knows what to him? But here's the deal. God knows genuine, heartfelt repentance when he hears it. He knows when it's the real thing that can save you. He, he never gets faked out. We do. We get faked out. God never gets faked out. So I'm just saying, Manasseh's repentance was legit. As legit as each of y'all's was. Now I'll tell you what, perhaps in this moment, the only thing Hezekiah did right in the life of his son was to plant seeds of faith and belief in his son. He might have been a wild shoot from the get-go. They're probably going... This one's going to be a bad one. This <laughs> kid's wild. But Hezekiah must have planted the seeds of faith. A seed that, that, that went dormant for a man's lifetime. 55 years. But the grace of God watered it. And ultimately faith sprung from that seed a, a faithful father had planted it's a wonderful example, people, especially all of us parents. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Must have had Manasseh in mind for that, right? When he's old? <laughs> yeah. He came back. I like this story the day of, about the day of affliction, Psalm 119, beginning in, in verse 67, but I've actually got three verses here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction has a way, right? Of going, oh yeah, I'm not, the word said I shouldn't be doing that stuff. I love verse 71 in Psalm 119. It's, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I, I was one of those guys. I, I had to learn how breaking God's commandments are so painful. And then verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. 
That's why it's so good to know the Word of God, man. Why it's so good to know it. So Manasseh was raised by a godly father, yet he lived in defiance of his father's faith. Any amens in here? I've heard, yeah, amen, for most of his life. Nevertheless, at the end of his days, he truly repented and was saved. How do we know? How do we know this? Because of the rest of the story we're still going to read here in a minute. Because of changed behavior, because a changed life came with this legit repentance. You don't just get saved and keep going, hey, it's the same old bar dude. He's the same old guy, bar diving, man, on Friday nights and whatever it is. If you don't know what bar diving is, unfortunately I do. If you twist my arm. Anyway, never mind. Verse 14, let's read what he did. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of the Gahan in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around. Ophel raised it to a very great height. So he built a wall. Now listen, this is where there's some, here's where there's some fruit for us here, okay? These next few little bits. Being born again of the Spirit by God, by true saving faith, Manny got to work to change things in his life. Uh, Just as we need to do once we commit our lives to Christ. Like a city needs walls to be secure from the enemy, so too our lives and our families. Men, fathers, largely our responsibility. If you have been saved by the Lord, have you built walls to protect your family from the world? Church, have we built walls to protect this fellowship of faith from bad and false teaching, right? And, and feel good salvation and, and, and such things. Has God, if you've been saved, perhaps recently, had God's grace extended to you, you need to be rebuilding the walls of discipline in your own life. The discipline of, of awaking and, and, and just having a desire to be in the Word, have a cup of coffee, get in the Word, find something that speaks to my heart. You know, getting into a time of prayer, face-to-face with the Lord, praying for your loved ones, etc. Praising the Lord for all the glory He is worthy of from us. That's building the wall of discipline in our lives. You can't do that once every six months. It's a pretty shabby wall. But when it becomes part of your life, you know, you've done, you've done a good thing. Verse 14, he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. So he set guards on the walls. Now it's great to have walls, but there needs to be someone up there looking for trouble too, right? You don't want to wait till you see ladder tops at the top of your walls and bodies coming over. It's good to know someone's watching the horizon out there, right? I feel like that's the pastor's roles here. Pastor John, Pastor David. They're the watchmen on the wall for you guys. They're standing there night and day. Uh, you know, maybe you sort of think about church on Saturday night and, and maybe on your way to a home group. These men are on the wall night and day, 24-7, 365, watching for trouble for you guys, praying protection over you guys. That's a pastor's role. Listen, in, in Christian radio, the internet's full of amazing Bible teachers who are guarding our walls of righteousness. Be wise and listen to them. Verse 15, he truly repented, man. Look at verse, and he took away, this is the, <laughs> this, the proof. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He cleaned house. People, get the junk out of yours. Get those susceptible little idols out. Get, get, glean through what, what your kids, what you are, are doing on the internet, you know, what you're watching on TV, you've, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to throw them outside the camp. And sometimes that means getting old friends out of an inner circle 
Doesn't mean they're not your friends because we still want to reach out to them. But if you have a friend in your inner circle that's still tempting you and speaking lies about, you know what, it's not so bad to do that. That's the enemy. He's looking for a break in your wall. He's looking for that, that one little crack he can come in through. Verse 16, he also restored, restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen, when the Lord comes into your life, it's supposed to really alter you. <laughs> That's a little, little pun there. Okay he, okay, he restored the altar of the Lord. Anyway, okay. Um, he's supposed, it's supposed to really alter you, right? The blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life should leave you in a radically altered state. People should go, dude, what happened to Billy? What happened to Al? They'd be saying that in Spanish in Argentina. But they say it in English about John in Florida. What happened to that guy? What happened to that opal? To all of us, right? Listen, does your family gather in your home and pray and read a simple devotion and read a bit of the word and meditate on that? And do you have your own altar time? And how does God want to alter us through the renewing of our minds by the Word of God? That's such an important way. With an understanding His position as a recipient of incredible grace from the Lord God, Manasseh built up walls, moved out idols, rebuilt altars, and so must we. And so must we. For the sake of time, I'm going to end our study in the Word right there. I've got a few last thoughts, but John, if you wanted to come back up at this point. Now this is... Manasseh had the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah. Does that make any sense to us? No, in the flesh, none. He was by far the most wicked of all the kings, Israel and Judah. We always go, oh, Ahab, Ugh. oh, Jezebel. Ugh. No, 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 no. Th th those guys are amateurs. Manasseh is the picture in the dictionary of the worst king of the nation of Judah and of all of God's kingdom. His longevity, longevity certainly wasn't because of his worthiness, but because of God's long-suffering awaiting the day his grace could come to bear. And sometimes we wonder why the Lord allows wicked, evil people in the world to go on and on in life. We just want to say, Lord, smite them right now. I've often said I want to bring smite back into our language. That's a good King James word. Smite them, Lord. I say that about the ISIS slaughterers and such. No mercy, Lord. But at the get-go, I ask this question, how vast is God's grace? How vast is it? I tried to answer that by looking at the life of a man that anyone would have said deserved eternal damnation and hell on the spot, but God had a different plan. God's grace overwhelmed his life of sin in a moment. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How vast is grace? It's pretty vast. And so the Lord put on my heart that maybe someone at this moment would be saying, yes, God's grace was big enough for King Manny, but is it big enough for me? Maybe someone online, I don't, I don't know. Pastor John, you, you just don't know what I've done. But the Bible says the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We also read that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
That's God's desire. Thus, he is patient. Now, it's astounding how far he'll extend himself in a person's life, waiting even for the most wicked man or woman to come to repentance. If there's hope for that, the Lord waited 55 years for Manasseh. But he finally fell to his knees in humility and surrender to the Lord. I'm not recommending you follow the Manasseh 55-year plan. Do not recommend that. Today is the day of salvation if you aren't saved. Don't be that guy that thinks they can pick the moment you die. You're one text message on your phone driving from being face-to-face with Jesus. Tomorrow may not come for any of us in here today. Are your spiritual bags packed and ready to go? You know, a lot of people seem to think, if I can just point to someone worse than me, then I'm probably good enough to get into heaven. So I have to say, I imagine everybody on earth is pointing to somebody worse than them, and all those fingers pointing go to one guy, the worst man alive today, and everybody else is going to go to heaven. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? You may not be a manasa or a pimp or a prostitute or a drug dealer, an addict, an alcoholic, addicted to porn, a child. Maybe your only sin has continued to be pridefulness and refusal to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a sin that has to be forgiven. Maybe you're thinking, I just don't need Jesus, but brother and sister, like I said, you're a test message away from meeting Jesus face to face. And he'll ask you one question. And since he reads hearts, when you're standing there, this is the can't change my mind little circle. And Jesus is just going to look to you and he's going to say, who did you say that I am? If it's not Jesus, you're Jesus. You're the Lord of salvation. You're my Savior. If that's not the truth of your heart, you're going to join the Manassas of the world that never turned back to God the worshipers of any other God, you're all going to be swimming in the lake of fire. Really, I call it the lake of the destruction of pride. Too proud to surrender to God. Hey, I'm just the messenger. This is what this book says. I believe every word of it. You see, God's word tells us that Jesus doesn't save on the curve. You get in that little circle with him, pass fail. (laughs) One right answer. He's going to ask you, who did you say that I am? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just, I, I, just, I just lift up all these precious souls here this morning and, and those online watching, Father, and, and, and those that, that, that can't say that yet, that you are, you are the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins, in whose name I am saved by faith through the grace of God unto salvation. If you can't answer that, Jesus' question right now, I pray that something you heard in the last 40 minutes or so could break down that wall of pride in your heart that you can simply confess that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And Lord Jesus Christ, you are a Savior. And so I come before you humbled, unable to save myself. And in my heart, I want to offer to you my life as a sacrifice. That as you, that when you save me because I believe Jesus in all you said. 
You are who you said you are. You did what you said you did. You can do what you said you can do for me. I accept you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior. Now come into me and and alter my life. Alter my life, Lord. That I can then stand again and begin doing works that are a blessing unto you, Lord, and unto the kingdom of God. Until the day you call me home and you you ask me to come stand in that little circle. And Jesus, you ask me, who did you say that I am? And I can say, you're my Lord and Savior and I worship no other. Oh, we pray that for all our prodigals, Lord. Come to them and save them so that in the time of the small circle, Lord, they have the right answer. The one you want. The one you want more than anything. And we thank you that so many of us in here have heard that, Lord. Thank you for this church where the truth of Jesus Christ is preached week after week. This is a place where, Holy Spirit, you can draw people and they're going to hear the true gospel. Not the easy gospel, the narrow road gospel but that all those that find the narrow path, Lord, it leads unto eternal life in heaven with you. I lift up our pastor, David, Lord. You would continue to heal him, his beautiful wife, Elizabeth, Michael, Kendra, all their families, Lord. Anyone else in our fellowship fighting illness? By the power of God, Jehovah Rapha, Lord, our healer, we ask that you just continue to do, finish your beautiful work in them and bring them back to us. Once again, we miss them so much. Let us be blessed this day, Lord. As we walk out, as the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And to that, all of God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's stand in uh, worship. More than all the things you have. than all the things you give Beyond all the things you do All I want is you And I don't need to know the plan God, I don't need to understand why you do the things you do all i need is you and i will seek your face in this holy place and i will fall to my knees and i'll worship you of my strife Lord you're the light of my life and my heart will not fear as I wait for you more than all the things you have and more than all the things you give Beyond all the things you do, all I want is you, and I don't need to know the plan, 
And I don't need to understand Why you do the things you do All I need is you And I will seek your face In this holy place And I will fall to my knees And I'll worship you And in the midst of my strife Lord, you're the light of my life And my heart will as I wait for you And I will seek your face In this holy place And I will fall to my knees And I'll worship you of my strife Lord you're the light of my life and my heart will not fear as I wait for you dear Lord we just uh, give you our worship we give you this time just to align our hearts with yours and just to walk in your spirit Lord dear Father just thank you for the message today Help it, help, us, help it to encourage us that there are no lost causes in your eyes, Lord. Until you say that it's done, it's not done, Lord. And so, dear Father, just the way that you changed us and you regenerated us and you fixed us, dear Father, just, just allow your Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to plow the ground of that, that hardened heart and just bring them close, Lord. Just bring them close to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as your body, as your bride and your church to invite, to tell, to preach, to just involve ourselves in other people's life. Help us, Lord, when we've declared a death sentence that it's not over until you say that it's over, Lord. And so, dear Father, help us to continue to love people beyond. Help us to continue to go that extra mile, Lord, that it's okay if if we catch the bad end of a business deal or we're slighted, dear Lord, help us just use our lives and even to, to the lowering of us, Lord. May your name be praised and your name be glorified. Dear Lord, may, may your kingdom continue to grow, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.